physics world. What you can hear is a clip from a Native American story about a half-man, half-duck who's searching the animal kingdom for his perfect bride. Stay tuned to find out what happens to him. The story, called Wood Duck, is told in a now-extinct native Californian language called Yahi. It's in a collection of recordings of native songs and speech made on wax cylinders during the first four decades of the 20th century. This collection is the focus of a new project at the University of California, Berkeley, where they're stored. Using technology inspired by imaging techniques at particle accelerators, the recordings have been digitised to preserve them and to improve their quality. It will also make them more accessible to native communities and scholars. I'm James Dacey, a reporter for Physics World, and to find out more about this project, I recently visited the Berkeley campus, where I first met with the project lead, Carl Haber. So um, I'm a, a senior scientist in the physics division at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. Um, I've been uh, here at Berkeley for 30 years. Um, I'm a high-energy experimental physicist. I work at the uh, CERN Large Hadron Collider on the ATLAS experiment. I've also worked for many years on experiments at Fermilab, which is the U.S. Uh, collider lab that up till recently was running as well. I specialize in uh, detectors for doing precision tracking of particles, uh, tracking detectors they're called. Uh, they're based on semiconductor devices, silicon-based sensors and electronics that allow us to get very precise measurements of, of the tracks of particles. Around the turn of the millennium, Haber had the idea of applying his expertise to a very different goal, to restoring historical audio recordings, which are made on discs and cylinders, made from early recording media such as foil, wax and lacquer. Now, archivists often make copies so they can preserve the original recordings. Over time, though, inevitably, the originals and their copies degrade. These materials are prone to imperfections caused by many things, such as cracking, mould and dust. What's more, every time you play back each of these recordings using a stylus, you damage them that little bit more. So Haber and his team invented a technique for digitising these early recordings, while also making the sound clearer and removing some of the glitches. It's called Irene, as one of the first items they restored was a broken shellac record of the song Goodnight Irene, recorded by the Weavers in 1950. It also stands for Image, Reconstruct, Erase, Noise, etc. The technique's based on capturing high-resolution images of the medium's surface, then feeding these images through a software that performs a series of clever fixes before saving the sounds in a digital format. Haber's work hit the headlines in recent years, such as when he brought back to life the oldest known audio recording at the time, a version of the French folk song Au Claire de la Lune, recorded in soot on a piece of paper by the French inventor Edouard Léon Scott de Martinville in 1860. It was an amazing achievement, really, as the original recording was never even meant to be played back. It was purely for the study of the acoustic waveforms. Here's a clip. The 
The first time sound was recorded and reproduced was in 1877 by Thomas Edison using grooves on tinfoil. Pioneering work was also done in the first half of the 1880s by Alexander Graham Bell and his team at the Volta Lab in Washington, D.C. In fact, one of Irene's most remarkable achievements was to restore the voice of Alexander Graham Bell himself, recorded on wax disc in 1885. Listen carefully, and you should be able to hear the British-born inventor saying, Hear my voice, Alexander Graham Bell. The Irene technique uses a confocal scanning microscope to create a 3D topographic map of the surface of discs, cylinders and any other recording media. Image and signal processing systems are then used to analyse the images and convert them into waveforms in a digital system. Software can interpolate to fill in the gaps caused by damage and remove unwanted noise. All of this taken together makes the final audio track sound clearer and less jittery. So the latest application of Irene is with a collection of early 20th century wax cylinder recordings of Native American speech and song, which are stored at Berkeley's Anthropology Museum. The practice of recording Native Americans began when the anthropologist Jesse W. Fuchs made field recordings of the Passamaquoddy people in 1890. The trend quickly caught on among anthropologists and ethnographers, many of whom believed they were recording the sounds of cultures that would inevitably die off within a few years. The Berkeley Collection is the largest and most diverse early repository of native Californian music and speech, as Haber explains. So the collection that we are focusing on here in Berkeley, it's a collection of approximately 3,000 wax cylinders that were collected by Professor Alfred Krober. He was an anthropologist. He was a student of Franz Boas, who was a kind of pioneering modern anthro anthropologist, kind of founded the American anthropology field. Krober traveled around California and also recorded people here in San Francisco, but he recorded uh, many different uh, Native American groups many different Native American languages across California. California has more linguistic diversity within the confines of the state's boundary than most of the rest of the country. Perhaps because California was a good, easy place to live and people didn't have to travel over long distances, but there are many, many different languages that, that came up independently and in parallel in California. The recordings were made between 1901 and 1938. The individual wax cylinders are dark brown and they're a bit smaller than I thought they would be actually, about 10 centimetres in length and probably half that in cross-section. The scanning's taking place in the university library and it got underway towards the end of last year. The plan is to scan all the cylinders within three years and they're roughly 10% of the way through that already. Among the most important recordings in the collection were those made with a man called Ishi, the last surviving member of the now extinct Yaqui people, who were indigenous in the central Sierra Nevada in Northern California. It was Ishi's voice you heard at the start of this podcast, and the story of Ishi is a fascinating one. To find out more, I caught up with Berkeley anthropologist 
I am a Jackness. Tell me about Ishii. I mean, who, who is who is so Ishii? So Ishii was um, a Yahi Indian. It's a language that's spoken in northeastern California. Um, there was uh, during the 19th century there was a, a great deal of uh, murder and genocide applied to native Californians and including Ishii's people, the Yahi. And they were never a very large group to begin with. So by the end of the 19th century, there were uh, the f the entire population had dwindled just to his family of a few people, and uh, they were hiding from people trying to murder them, and disappeared, and nobody knew what happened to them. And then in 1911, Ishii showed up in a town, Oroville, in Northern California, and he was starving and exhausted, and uh, he had sort of, he had given up. It seemed that he had lost his entire family, and had been living alone for several years, and just couldn't keep going on anymore. So he showed up, and uh, of course no one could understand what he was saying, and he couldn't understand what anybody else was saying. Uh, but the Anthropology Museum in San Francisco was uh, very interested in, in these Aboriginal cultures, and they had had um, notices that had the bits and pieces, clues about the Ishi's people, uh, but they hadn't any real documentation. So the museum sent an anthropologist up to Oroville to try to communicate with Ishi, and they managed to figure out who he was and what his language was. And uh, they made an arrangement with the uh, Federal Indian Service that he would, uh, because he had no relatives, he was all alone, that he would come to San Francisco and live in the Anthropology Museum teach people about his culture, which he did from 1911 until his death of uh, tuberculosis in 1916. In the museum in San Francisco, Kroeber and his colleagues were joined by Sam Batwi, a man of mixed native heritage, who could understand at least some of what Ishii was saying. They figured out that Ishii had been living alone for up to three years prior to arriving in Oroville. Within no time at all, Ishii became very talkative probably just relieved to finally come across a receptive audience after spending so long alone in the wilderness. After a couple of days, Ishii started telling the story of Wood Duck, a tale of a mythical figure searching for a partner. The anthropologists were captivated by the performance, which went on for about five hours. So they asked Ishii if he could repeat the story the next day and be recorded using the phonograph technology recently invented by Edison. That involves speaking directly into a large horn to create indentations onto wax cylinders. So they asked him to tell the story again for the phonograph, and he went through the whole thing again. This time, I think it only took two and a half hours or something like that. Uh, but imagine uh, recording two and a half hours on wax cylinders, each of which lasts uh, three minutes. So this was a major effort, and uh, this was not no singing involved. This was a connected uh, narrative lasting hours and hours and hours, and it really was unprecedented in America. No one had ever recorded a native uh, myth, a verbal document uh, at, at that length and complexity before. So it was very exciting. The only problem was that no one really understood what he was saying, and so they, they worked with this uh, translator for a while, and they got a linguist in, and they, uh, one of the anthropologists worked very seriously at uh, translating the cylinders, but every time he uh, played it, he was rubbing off some of the wax, so it's uh, more and more degraded.
As you can hear, the original wood deck recording is now very crackly and damaged. Haber's scanning technique has helped to improve the quality. Listen to the new version. It's a very typical um, native, it's not very sacred, it's a more of a, a folk tale, and it's a story of a wood duck who's a kind of um, half human, half animal, and uh, he's looking for a wife, and all of these uh, prospective brides come to his village and present themselves, there's a raccoon and a deer and a duck and all these different creatures and they all uh, sort of propose to him trying to seek his uh, affection and he rejects them all mm-hmm. and in in the end he sends them all away and <laughs> so he doesn't get a wife and they don't get a, a spouse and uh, that seems to be what as much as we know about what the story's about. There's, there was no idea was there some sort of moral um, aspect to that to that story? Is there some kind well of we think th- well we don't know much about Ishii so it, it's open to speculation <coughs> And uh, as far as we know, Ishii never married. And never the population was so small, it was just his family. And so he probably, he was about 60 years old when he appeared. And so he had probably thought a lot about wives and mm-hmm. getting married mm-hmm. during his, his time. And <laughs> he was just finally getting off his chest. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and so he was some, so there's something going on maybe that he told the story and was very passionate. I mean, we'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. One of the ironies is that at the um, very uh, end of the story, that according to Theodora Krober, uh, Ishii was living in San Francisco at a, in a building called the Affiliated Colleges, which was affiliated because they were the university uh, law school and the medical school, and that's where the anthropology museum was. And the last bride, who's whatever she is, one of the animal creatures, comes to present himself herself to him and, and she's from the affiliated colleges <laughs> so he was changing the myth to uh, account for his new, new life his, his new contacts, his new, yeah. new contacts well. issues updating of wood duck was a sign that each telling of a native american story is a unique performance involving all those present the highly social acts often told merely to pass the time and night was usually the time for this there was also a belief in yahi culture that a narrator must finish a story once started, or his back would become crooked. During his five years in the Anthropology Museum, Ishii was studied and photographed extensively, and he was recorded telling many stories and singing songs. You're about to hear a clip from one called Gambling Song, a song that accompanied a popular Yahi game, where one player tries to guess which of his opponent's hands holds a marked bone. This clip is from the original Cylinder recording. Many of the songs Ishii sang are related to illness and curing. Here's a restored clip from a song called A Doctor's Song for Sucking Sickness. And you can even hear the anthropologist introducing the recording. At Berkeley, I visited the university library to see the scanning in action. The equipment was set up on a vibration-resistant bench top, and I could see the 3D probe and focus control lasers. 
In fact, it looked like many other optics experiments I've come across over the years. It included a long metal spindle running horizontal to the bench top, along which sat the three wax cylinders. They looked a bit like chunks of meat on a shish kebab being precision cooked with the laser light. The operation was being run by one of the project analysts, Olivia Dill. I asked Dill to tell me a bit more about what's involved in the scanning. Yeah, the goal is to end up, um, while well, that's scanning, it'll just always be there silently spinning in the background, and then on a different computer we'll be processing audio from scans that we've taken in the past. So always acquiring and always processing at the mm. same time. And I mean, what, what, what kind of things could go wrong? I mean, hopefully they won't, but... If they, if they did. And the biggest thing is just tracking everything and not losing files and making sure that there's, I don't know, that you kind of understand the cylinder as an entity itself as it moves through all of the processes. So you don't get to the end. It, it was kind of a refresher for me last week, um, getting back up to speed with processing entire cylinders. You want to be able to get to the end and say, okay, this cylinder has a click, there's... Um, uh, <laughs> we make lots of lots of similes. There's this noise that sounds like a lawnmower, or noise that sounds like a, a a blow fan in the background. Why is that? Is it something that we processed incorrectly, or is it something in the cylinder? And you want to be able to go back in your mind, or back in your notes, or back in the data that you've kept to be able to track the sources of the noise at the end to sources in the actual physical cylinder, and make sure it makes sense all the way throughout. And, and, and so, when you're handling the cylinders, is there anything you need to do in particular, it's best to uh, wear gloves or yeah, just <laughs> don't drop them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we wear gloves. You handle them from the inside, so you're not making contact with the grooves on the outside. Um, and then, yeah, big no-no is dropping them or letting them fall or click against anything. These cylinder recordings already serve as a cultural treasure trove to anthropologists. But by improving the sound quality and creating a digital library, the recordings will be more accessible to native communities today. That's one of the major motivations behind this restoration project, as Haber explains. I believe today's researchers in linguistics see these collections as an important laboratory on, on language, language development and early languages. And I also believe that uh, surviving uh, communities uh, that are the descendants of some of these groups also value these recordings as a way of studying the, their language, revitalizing their language, and providing material for cultural and celebrations and uh, cultural events. All the files will be stored in the California Language Archive but access to the bulk of the collection will be limited to scholars, native community members and other educational and non-commercial users. That's because in Californian Indian cultures, many of the songs and stories are culturally sensitive. And anthropologists today are acutely aware of the history of their field, where questions have been asked about the balance in power between them and the communities they've studied. I asked Jack this, how he thinks Native Americans today will use the recordings. 
So if you're a contemporary native living today, you can go back and listen to your grandfather, your great-grandfather singing a song. And of course, like all cultures, the pronunciation is going to change, styles are going to change, uh, all kinds of things are going to change. So these will be important documents and learning about how things were done back in the old days. And you, and you think obviously there's a certain amount of cultural sensitivity surrounding that. So for that reason, you're not just going to sort of release all this data at once to everybody. Is it, is it going to be carefully exactly. uh, curated, you know, whilst consulting native uh, communities yes. and leaders? So the way we do things now is that we work very closely with native peoples who are vitally interested in all these collections. And, and indeed, we could we have these recordings, these photographs. We could just throw them all out on the internet, and and make them public, and and that would make some people very happy. Uh, but we don't want to do that. That's that's very uh, exploitative. And we know, particularly that uh, the, the, all these collections they vary enormously. Some are entirely innocuous, and they're for entertainment, and they're like songs that anybody could sing and listen to, and we know that. And if we shared that, there would not be a problem. But some are the exact opposite. They're very sacred, and they can only be sung by someone who has the rights to sing it, who's inherited this from an older person and gone through the proper procedures and whatnot. And so even though we have these recordings that physically could be shared, we know that that's not proper for Native uh, protocols. And so for uh, after we do this work, uh, to get better sound recordings, we'll, we're not going to release them to the public uh, until we've worked with the native people and gotten their permission to do that. So it'll be really interesting to see the impact of this restoration project in the coming years. Meanwhile, Haber is already engaged in another use of the Irene technology, this time to restore a large collection of aluminium discs of folk stories recorded in the 1930s in what was then Yugoslavia. So thanks for listening today and you can see a video of the Irene technology in action at Berkeley by visiting the multimedia pages of physicsworld.com. Special thanks also to the Phoebe A. Hurst Museum of Anthropology at Berkeley for providing the recordings of Ishii and to the Smithsonian National Museum of American History for the Alexander Graham Bell recording and to the First Sounds Project for the clip of Eau Claire de la Lune. Join us again next month for another story from the physics community. Goodbye. Physics World.